It's hard to hear the news today. It's hard to see the painful way our stinking thinking feeds only the self. The me and mine, the us and them, continuing the suffering. What can I do to ease this living hell? Finding purpose in a world on fire as far as I can see. Trying not to add my kindling or emotional gasoline. Surrounded in this smoky life, I can barely breathe. But by deconstructing self, we are free. We are free. Yeah, we are free. We are free. I can't fix the way things are. And I can't heal the painful scars. Snuff out the blazing flame of fear and greed. Attachment to my own fixed views. My separate self's always bad news. While wisdom says that love is all we need. Finding purpose in a world on fire as far as I can see trying not to add my kindling or emotional gasoline surrounded by this smoky life I can barely breathe but by deconstructing self we are free, yeah, we are free, we are free, we are free. The ash that's left by all of this humiliation, horror, disgust, abiding in nothingness, now I see. Embracing happiness and joy, singing out a joyful noise, and gently holding space for all to be. We're finding purpose in a world on fire as far as I can see. Trying not to add my kindling or emotional gasoline. Surrounded in this smoky life, I can barely breathe. But by deconstructing self, we are free, we are free, yeah, we are free, we are free, oh, we are free.
she's a really good songwriter, isn't she? But, uh, that, that one really gets me in, and she wrote it in just a few minutes. We were uh, getting ready to uh, do a retreat in Columbia, and at the last minute I told her what the talk was about, and I told her, write, write a song. <laughs> and that's what she came in, finding purpose in a world on fire, as far as I can see, and trying not to add my kindling or emotional guarantee gasoline. What's the next line? In this smoky life. In this smoky life. I can barely breathe, but by deconstructing self, I am free. I was, um, Panyadipa and I watched uh, a documentary last night on uh, parents who are using their children for financial survival in the Philippines. And it was around um, sexual exploitation and how the parents felt out of desperation and rationalization that this was all right because uh, the sexual predators didn't actually have the children, didn't physically touch them or do things. This is all internet-based on what they call something, the dark, the dark web. And uh, the hundreds of thousands of uh, people who are on the dark web uh, paying for parents to uh, use their children in this way. <clears throat> and it was so disheartening because Panyadipa and I had been having some conversations, you know, when you become aware of something you know, what is your responsibility? Um, how can you have some uh, effect on a circumstance? If, is there anything within your power, your ability to help rectify a situation? So we had been thinking when we started getting the statistics on um, on not we'd known about sexual abuse because we'd worked with the homeless youth for for many years, but on sex trafficking and uh, slave trafficking in uh, North Carolina, and we were astounded at the statistics because just to look out, you know, like this is a wonderful place to live, you know. Um, and you have to really be looking, and you have to really be informed to find some of the hidden terror that exists in our own community. And I think that we have a responsibility to do whatever we can do uh, near and far. Uh, so we work in other places in other countries like 
uh, developing nations, but also here. And I remember when we started almost 15 years ago now that we were in such denial uh, that we, we didn't want to see and we didn't want to look and we didn't want anybody to mention it, to bring it up. And I remember when I first started going around and talking to the, um, the uh, uh, principals at the schools and the counselors and, and, and some of the ministers, they said, we don't talk about that here. I said, but if we don't talk about it here when it's happening here, where will we talk about it? You know. And in time, after a couple of years, the it became people became more willing to discuss incest and things like that openly. Now, uh, the shame, a greater shame than it was happening was to not talk about it and to not um, offer some hope to the children who were victims of it and to not offer some help uh, to the adults who were perpetrators of it. And so some progress, not enough progress, but some progress is being made. So my mind was sort of wrapped up around that aspect of of uh, of the whole uh, sexual uh, conundrum around abuse and and children. And just when I thought I could wrap my head around it, that this is something that's workable, that we can get our hands in, that we can uproot and eradicate, then I hear about the dark web and the hundreds of thousands of people engaged in the thousands of, of websites and, and how it's getting more and more difficult to uncover them because of the ways that they can, I don't know, camouflage code. You know, I'm just not even interested in all that technology stuff, except what I'm discovering is that, you know, ignorance is not bliss. And what you don't know can hurt. And to think that we don't feel the pain of others because it's not a superficial ouch or owie is to misunderstand uh, and to be uh, dull to our interconnectedness. If we really could recognize that when, you know, if you have one uh, pain, one prick in your body, in your finger or in your toe, I mean, the whole body knows. The whole body is aware of that. And so it is with us and our interconnectedness. So there is not anything that can occur. Sometimes people feel down, they don't even know why they feel down. Sometimes they're feeling bad, they don't even know why they feel bad. Why am I feeling so Everything's <laughs> Everything is going right in my life. Everything is going good in my life. But because on the deeper, more subtle levels, we're not the 
individuals who cut off at the skin that we think we are. We are impacted in extremely subtle ways by the infirmities and the suffering of others. And so we were watching this last night and I have to admit, I'm, I'm usually extremely optimistic and rah-rah, we can do it kind of person, but I felt like somebody stuck a pin in my balloon that no matter how you try to address something, you know, those who would do find another way to get in. And what was so sad about this expose is that the parents, you know, for the, due to the poverty and uh, and also due to our uh, lack of moral shame in the world today, felt that this was an okay way to make money, to buy a car, to you know get a house, to. And that's what they were saying, with that money, we've been able to buy a car. All I have to do is hook up the internet and beam in a guy and have my six-year-old, and they were saying that the ages are getting younger and younger. They want babies. And it's not real because he's on a TV screen doing things to himself and asking the six-year-old to touch herself in certain ways. And I said that when these children are used in this way, that a teacher can immediately recognize it because it's like the light goes out in their eyes. They become numb. That even at, that, at their young ages, at four years old, they have a a recognition of a devaluing of themselves. And that it's setting up a, a pathology that we can only imagine what the world will be like in 15 or 20 more years. And most of us will still be around then, if not us, our children and their grandchildren, and our grandchildren. And so, in a way, all of this concerns us. And the Buddha constantly talks about seeing others as oneself. Seeing others as oneself. We went to uh, Tennessee, to Nashville, to participate in a, a, a celebration of universal peace and they were celebrating all right you know but the question for me is what really what were we celebrating because we don't have universal peace so if we do come together you know maybe we could do something else with that time maybe we could educate ourselves we could feed our minds maybe we could uh I was wondering what I would say to this group because they were celebrating. And it wasn't really the right 
time uh, and the right setup, you know, for the kind of Dharma talk that I had prepared. Um, I said, what shall I talk to this group about that's here in front of me because this is the, what I have is not uh, for this group at this moment. It was for the group, but not at this moment. And so I thought I'd talk to them about the five brightnesses and how the Buddha says that all of us have the Buddha nature, the awakened nature. That's what Buddha means, awakened. But that that uh, nature, that lumin luminous brightness, that clear seeing or compassionate capacity is obscured. It's obscured by the information that we take in. It's obscured by the lives that we live, it is impacted by karma. And the best use of our lives, how to seize the essence of a precious human life, is to use this time to peel back the layers of our ignorance so that our luminosity can shine forth, to be uh, light in a dark world. We can say the world is dark, but if we really uh, understood that we have the capacity to be that we are the light of the world and only that the light has lost its brightness so the world takes on an appearance of darkness then we would be more encouraged that there is hope for a brighter future if we don't know this, then we lose all hope and we think there is no answer. There is no way of escape. And we get depressed and we drop into apathy or we uh, do things to try to make us not look at or not think about or not Solved. Mind just can't wrap around the problems, and we get all caught up in other people's craziness. So this morning, because we'd been away for a few days, I said, "You know, I should catch up on current events." And I turned on the TV, and and I heard on CNN, and I heard more of some people's craziness. And I started to feel a little agitation. And as soon as I did, a stop it came up for me. A stop it. Because the night before we you know, watched this uh, documentary on, on, on the sex trade, and then this morning, uh, it was about uh, uh, nationalism and the NFL. You know, and everybody's got their own opinion about it, and many things that were said really were statements of of uh, of truth. But the agitation was so prevalent in me, and I said, "You know, we're always talking 
about what we believe and what we embrace, and yet can't handle anything, constantly pulled off our mark and, and devolving into the craziness of people who don't know their intrinsic nature, you know, who, who forget their value to the world. And getting off of our agenda, devolving into their incessant chatter causes us to be of absolutely no good use and no effect in the world. Because it takes the arousal of strength. It takes the arousal of effort. It takes the uh, uh, vision to see beyond the problem to the solution. And then the tenacity and the strength to be able to prevail. And before we can prevail out there, we have to prevail in here. So, so many are out there toiling with all of their might, but actually bankrupt, burned out. And you can tell that because really good people overcome, consumed with uh, anger, going out with their peace signs and then whacking people in the head with the peace sign. Yelling at each other, in each other's faces, and they just went for friendly conversation. And somewhere along the line, you know, having forgotten oneself, having obscured one's own brightness, the good they would do, you cannot do. So I had a particular talk that came up for me this morning. <laughs> that wasn't even it that came up this morning, and I was wondering, what in the world does this have to do with anything after I started watching CNN? But it started to all come together for me. And I want to read to you. Oh. <laughs> I want to read to you um, an excerpt that I took from Osho. <laughs> I like this particular one. I can't say that, that I personally agree or that anyone else personally agrees with everything Osho said. But this was a, a fairly good um, recount of a story in the Samyutta Nikaya. And this was a question about God. So many people come to me who were like either former, uh, formerly Christian or hold some other belief of an, you know, an absolute creator who rules all creation and who judges us at how well we did it living up uh, to his principles for conduct and, uh, and who decides whether we go to heaven or hell. And of course 
uh, Buddhism doesn't believe in the existence of a God in this kind of way, in this theistic sense. Uh, it's a, essentially a, a uh, if you want to call it a religion, that which can, uh, uh, concerns how you walk out your life and understand your relationship to life and everything and everyone in it. Um, and you could say it's essentially a, a religion of the heart, which uses, trains and develops and uses the mind and that advocates for present moment awareness for the development of inner purity, the cultivation of ethical conduct and provides freedom or escape from this whole problem about uh, impermanence that everything is constantly changing you know and that Everything is basically unsatisfactory. Even if it's good in the beginning, we get weary of it and we have to go get a new thing or a new somebody. Uh, if it's not good, we don't like it. If it's good, we want it to stay just the way it is forever. And, and it's a practice, if you will, uh, upon relying upon one's own experience and discernment. So many times people would come to the Buddha and they'd ask questions. And I think it's so wonderful to read the suttas because we learn something. First thing we learn is that every question does not need to be answered. Just because somebody asks you a question doesn't mean you have to answer the question. Sometimes they need to sit and ponder and come up with their own conclusion. Sometimes the question needs to be answered, but not by you. Sometimes the question needs to be answered, and I should answer it, but not at this time. It's kind of knowing what's appropriate at a given time for who's in front of you, you see. <clears throat> and so uh, the Buddha and his disciples entered a village and a man asked him as he was entering the village, he said, does God exist? And the Buddha said, no. And in the afternoon, another man came and he asked, does God exist? And the Buddha said, yes. In the evening, a third man came and he asked, does God exist? And Buddha closed his eyes and remained utterly silent. The man also closed his eyes and something transpired in that silence. And after a few minutes, the man touched the Buddha's feet and he bowed down and he paid his respects to him. And he said, you are the first man who has answered my question. Now, Buddha's attendant, Ananda, was with him, and he was, like, really puzzled. 
Uh, and as they were getting ready to go to, to sleep for the night, he said, I, I can't, I can't sleep. I can't rest. In the morning, you said no. In the afternoon, you said yes. In the evening, you didn't answer at all. And the guy said, thank you for giving me the answer. He said, what is, what is really the truth? The Buddha said, first of all, I was not talking to you. You didn't ask, so the answer wasn't for you. You just overheard it. The first man who came was an atheist. The second man who came was a theist. The second man was an atheist, and the third man was an agnostic. So my answers had nothing to do with the question. My answer had everything to do with the questioner, the one asking the question. I was answering the questioner, and my response was absolutely unconcerned with God. The person who believes in God, I'll say no to him because I want him to drop his idea of God, to be free of his idea, that because that's a borrowed idea. Obviously, he has not experienced God, because if he had, he wouldn't have to ask me. There would have been no need if there had been a direct experience. The person who believed from a borrowed concept, I was not going to say to him, yes, I was not going to confirm somebody else's belief. I had to say no, just to destroy this barrier to him seeking out what is true for himself. When one has such a direct experience, they no longer have a belief. They have a knowing. The person who remained silent was the right inquiry. He had no belief. He didn't know, so there was no question about destroying anything for him. And that was my message to him. Be silent. And you can know something. You don't really have to ask. There is no need to ask. Because that's not an inquiry, but it's a quest, a thirst. Be silent. And know. He said, and I answered him because... Through my silence, I gave him the message, and he followed it. He immediately became silent, and he looked within, and something transpired for him. I did not give him an intellectual answer. He had not come 
for an intellectual answer. Intellectual answers are available and they're, and they're cheap. But he needed a taste of something, a direct taste. So there was the one who believed but didn't know. That was a borrowed experience. There was the one who believed but he felt that he needed to destroy that belief because he couldn't go any further. And there was the one who asked with no dog in the fight and he said if you get still enough you can know for yourself. This is a practice of that, getting still enough so that we can know for ourselves. I listen to all of these people who have views, we have our belief systems, we have what we say we know it is true. We know this is right. And I look at them, these are the very ones that are going to the synagogue, going to the church, coming into the sangha by day and trolling the internet by night. These are the ones that say God is love, and they take up their weapons, and they go to war. These are the ones that say, first do no harm, and then they sell you drugs that addict you and rob you of all your wealth for the rest of your life when they have the cures. These are the ones that profess to be lovers of God and lovers of self and lovers of life. These tens of thousands that we see doing all of these destructive things who say there's no, not a racist bone in my body And yet, every action speaks so overtly of a sense of privilege, entitlement, and absolute hatred and disgust for anybody who doesn't look like them. And this is because religions tend to have a shadow which is the opposite of their strongest principles or qualities. For Christianity, this seems to be intolerance. You know, There's, there is no other religion that has such a resistance to uh, not, not necessarily embracing the beliefs of others, but allowing others to have a different view.
the Taoists, the religion of the formless, <laughs> it has an obsession with rituals and customs. Islam, the religion of submission, seems to manifest its shadow as an inability to accept anything other than what it embraces. And Buddhism has a shadow. And I think our Buddhist shadow is a preponderance on uh, the intellect and the supremacy of the conceptualizing mind to the exclusion of the deep internal inquiry required that can only be found when conceptualization ceases. There is such a place, but it takes time to touch it, and most of us will not give ourselves this time so we also shall never know the truth. We don't know ourselves. That's why we get so caught up in other people's craziness and other people's agendas. That's why we're so confused about what we should be doing. The ability to have stability of heart and clarity of mind depends on our own effort to know ourselves. To face our thoughts and our speech and our actions that both line up and do not line up with what we hold to be true. To know the Dharma is not to be able to recite suttas and pithy sayings and, and wearing certain kinds of garb and having certain customs and rituals, it's not that. To know the Dharma is to know oneself. To really know oneself. He said that if we get to just know ourselves, we will know the 10,000 things. He said, don't believe it? And it starts with being able to sit in the silence until all of the internal chatter falls away. And for some of, that, some of us, that can take a really long time because we've been used to having this constant dialogue with ourselves. If we see somebody walking down the street just a mumbling through something, they say, that person's crazy. But we're constantly mumbling 
to ourselves. We're constantly making something of everything that we see or hear or taste or touch or smell or think, thinking of, upon thinking, upon thinking. But the Buddha said, there is a wellspring. There is a, a place in us where the highest attributes and qualities of our humanity dwells. It will not be found outside of us, but it is found deep within. And because we have busied ourselves with the superficial, we have not learned how to go deep. And so we have to take up this training. What will you give to know the truth? What will you give? to come forth as the light of the world. What would you give to be able to uh, bring forth your innate brightness? So there are these five vidyas. One is the healing vidya. And if a person has a predisposition towards fixing things, whether they're fixing a broken body or a broken bicycle, that is the healing vidya or healing brightness. There is the sound vidya. One who is consummate in speech, in being able to arouse, in being able to clarify, in gifts of music. And if you have that, that is the sound vidya. Maureen has many abilities. She's a doctor. But she recently retired a couple of years ago to hit the circuit singing songs. Because in her stillness, it became clear to her what her deepest brightness was. Now she still does the work that she does and she's our uh, director of wellness for our wellness center and program that we're in the process of developing. But when she talked to me about it, she said, Panyawadi, I, w 
I want to talk to you about something, you know. I want to have this conversation, you know, with uh, my husband. I've been thinking that I want to, you know, go full-time into music. And I know, like, you know, we're still paying for student loans, you know. But this is really my greatest work. What do you think about this? I said, I think you need to have that talk with your husband. <laughs> and when she talked to him, he's a professor at the, uh, what, where is he? The Missouri Science and Technology University. Yeah, the uni- Science and Technology University in Missouri. You know, so like, you know, I'm thinking like he's real pragmatic, right? And he's a real, you know, like, uh, he said, I think it's a good idea and I'm going to join you. And so, uh, so until he can retire in two more years, they take every break, you know, spring break, winter break, and he arranges a tour, and they just travel from place to place, writing and singing songs, breaking through uh, fetters in people's lives. And I want to tell you, you know, I was really deeply touched. Because because they have decided this, her student loans didn't go away. She still has to pay for that. And it makes a big difference, though. You know, in their finances, it really, you know, like where your money is, your heart is. And that's when I knew that this was a genuine epiphany that she had. Because she could place it even above the money. So another vidya is logic and being able to really think through and explain things. I think Panyadipa has that vidya. Another is craftsmanship. Craftsmanship would be like an an artist, of people who make things, uh, photography, rug weavers, architects and builders. Filmmakers taking pieces of things and building them, transforming them into something that is useful. And then the fifth vidya, and this is the one I'm talking about today, inner realization. He said, that is one that is available to all of us. But it costs something. It costs us not being so attached to our own view, because that's what makes us fight with one another. Sometimes in our attachment to our own view and our stubbornness, we bring calamity. 
because we force issues and get them to the point that they have escalated beyond our capacity to resolve them in a peaceful manner. So I, we should take care of matters while they are small. And sometimes to take care of a matter while it's small is a matter of taking down. It's a matter of pacifying the ego. I'm not going to let him get the best of me. I'm not going to let her get one up on me. I'm going <clears> to... <throat> and so there's this push and tug, and before you know it, it escalates beyond our developed, cultivated capacity to resolve. And so we fight. And then it becomes the strongest wins. But there really is no winning. Because the one who loses, the one who is conquered, always thinks about gaining his freedom. That's why one man's terrorist or one country's terrorist even, is another man's or another country's freedom fighter. It just depends which side you're on. We're going to have to back up. We're going to have to backtrack. It's not easy to do when you like running downhill to just stop. And we're going downhill. It's not easy to just stop. But the Dharma invites us to do just that. It invites us to stop. It invites us to sit with ourselves. And then to sit with each other when we have a degree of stillness. So that the conceptualizing mind and that mind whose opinions are based on information they've gathered from the outside where the brightness does not exist. will become secondary to the innate wisdom that we all possess. All of these issues and troubles are of our own making. If we started them, we can end them. We can't do it with ego, but we can do it with heart, with clarity, with right mindfulness. 
with development of a uh, moral shame is not like the way we think of shame and the way we have been shamed by uh, ignorant minds. But moral shame is like seeing the destructiveness in the slightest wrongdoing. That's it. Just seeing the destructiveness in the slightest wrongdoing. And purposing to abandon it. And then in that moment when we are called upon to really walk it out, being able to walk it out. And we may walk it out haltingly in the beginning because we're not steady and stable. But the more we do it, the stronger and more purposeful we will become. If you want to know what is my contribution, To making the world a better place. Not like that better place. Because some of us think about creating a heaven on earth, but heaven is heaven and earth is earth. It causes and conditions that uh, precipitate having an appearance on this plane where there's good and not good. But if we want to at least contribute what we can to making it better. We have to each work on ourselves. And when we have done a really good job of that, the Buddha says you don't even have to speak. He said, Things are always transferring and transmitting. There is a transmission of that. Clarity and harmlessness that flows from heart to heart, even without words. There is a transmission of the knowingness that flows from mind to mind much like the data that's moving right here in the air right now, the radio waves and so forth, and if we had the right receiver, we could pick it up. There is something that flows between us all the time. And we're getting an idea of what is flowing by the outpicturing of events in the world. So my question is, those of us who are bent upon liberation and upon uh, giving comfort to the world, what? are we transmitting? 
in our secret places, in our hidden spaces. What are the thoughts and intents? We can know it by what we see happen in the world. We don't have to get up and do something as much as we need to sit still and do something. But when we've come to fruition in our stilling, when we have uprooted our selfish tendencies of preserving me and my and what's mine, when we recognize the interconnection of all living beings, when we recognize someone else's suffering and we're touched with their feelings of infirmity as much as our own and as much as those that are closest to us in proximity or by blood, then we will be qualified and effective in changing the world. Do you know that this is as simple as making the commitment to sit for a few minutes each day coming to know one's own heart-mind, becoming aware of how we really feel about things and how it's affecting us by being aware or mindful of the body. Thinking we're okay when we're on the edge of freaking out because we have not picked up the internal signals. We don't know that we're running on fumes. We think we still have a lot of gasoline in the tank. We haven't come to grips with our own ideas or notions about something because we're too ashamed to even acknowledge it even to ourselves, so I just won't, I just won't look. Where we hold views tenaciously and think they are right, if the shoe was on the other foot, contemplating what I still think that it's right. This kind of deep introspection is what we have to do right now. Because the only thing that is going to uproot ignorance is knowing. That's the two sides. So I ask you today, this practice absolutely works. I understand many, many arguments on the other side because for a long time I was on 
the same side of the conversation. And I could imagine how they thought that way. Because at one time I thought that way. But I don't anymore. Expanding our inclusion of others and their understanding of the world and our ability to influence it in a positive way is what's needed. Being willing to listen. I take responsibility. I finally take responsibility for the administration that we have in office today. I personally take responsibility for a lot of what I see happening, the aftermath of that. Why do I take responsibility? Because if I knew then what I know now, I would have worked harder. I would have done more. I would have appealed to the conscience of many when I kept silent. I would have done more. So in that sense, I take responsibility. I stop blaming others. And I definitely stop putting all of this power, giving away all of this power to an individual. No. The minute I started looking at it that way, I'm no longer angry or terrified of that person or of that administration or of that process or of that agenda or whatever. My focus reshifts. Not to what they are doing, but what are we doing? I gather my energy and my strength back. And I become available for good. Starts with sitting with oneself. Until it sounds strange, but until you can drop your tight grasping around your own view, because until you get to that place, you cannot really hear the gripe or the concern of the other that has caused them to rise up and act in a particular way. See, the Buddha, when he was with those three men that day, it wasn't the questioner, but he was able to connect with on a very deep level and perceive the real question, 
the real inquiry. He was able to touch the heart of the person and point him to his own clarity, to finding his own clarity. And that's the only thing that works. You can't force other people to do what you want them to do. They have to want to do it. If they're forced to do it, they'll always be looking for a way out. Unless there is a change or transformation deep in the heart, they will be looking for their day, their eight years. They'll be looking. Eight years ago, I was happy. Some people were very much not. Now, some people are happy. I am very much not. But how will I respond? You just wait till we get our next, our next eight years? What will that set up? That sets up the following eight years of revenge. You see? So it'll be a never-ending cycle. And we'll die without having accomplished anything. So start sitting five minutes a day, just sitting. The first thing you'll find is that whatever arises, a, a jumble of thoughts will just be rising up, rising up. Just let them rise up. Mm-hmm, I see that thought. Mm-hmm, I, 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 I hear that. Uh, yeah, I, yes, yes, yes. You know, and you're just acknowledging that the thoughts are there. You're not trying to change them. You're not trying to push them down. You're not trying to push them away. It's just letting the record play. These thoughts that are rising up. Take no action now. And just continuing to sit, you'll find that, you know, bit by bit, the thoughts lessen. Bit by bit, there'll be some uh, stability that you can sit with the thought, but your head won't be like painting because when you think about it, you get so angry. After all, you'll just think about it, but not with the anger. And you continue to sit. You just, you think about me like, I just don't understand how anybody could think that way. But you just continue to sit. And as you continue to sit, you start remembering the insane thoughts you've had from time to time and how they didn't make any sense, but you were like just so frustrated or you were just so, ah, oh, frustration. They're just so frustrated. Listen then to what they're saying. You can see they tell you what they're frustrated about. But before we were saying that's not a, a valid view. I don't accept your view. But we have if they if that's their view, that's their view. We have to listen. And as we begin to listen in this way, we are growing. We're expanding in our capacity to understand and feel 
the pain or the confusion or the sorrow of others. And as we garner and develop this kind of experience, you know, this information is like going in like, like information into a database. And it starts to craft something. The scenario is the way of escape. And we'll start to have some thoughts about how to come to the table with something useful. We can say to the one, I understand how you feel. And not because we learn that in nonviolent communication, but because we really do understand how they feel. And we may really understand how there hasn't been a right reasoning around that thought. And we can offer a way of looking at it. Not a demand that you accept this, but here's another way you can look at it. Here's something that you can consider. And yes, considering their view. Acknowledging that not everything that's said is wrong. You know, I have, and I'm through, I have, uh, I've really been going through something as a person of color, they call them, as a black person. Just amongst my peers who are in leadership, even within the Buddhist diaspora, you know, national teachers and so forth. Because they'll come to me and say, Panyawadi, what you said is true, but we shouldn't be saying that now. Because this right here is so egregious. And I'm like, this right here is so egregious. But some of what is said, some of what they said, the other side is true. And we need to be able to acknowledge what is true. Not to have a side, but to acknowledge what is true. And sometimes it's what our opponent is saying. And our refusal to acknowledge what is true just makes them hunker down more in their opinion where there could have been an opening for conversation. You see what I mean? We don't want to do this right now. But it is our only way of moving forward. I watched a, a story of two people who are on two different sides of an issue. One, it came out right around the time of uh, Charlotte, uh, Charlottesville, right. And one guy was a KKKer and the other guy was a, uh, a minister. And this KKKer was terrorizing in this minister's town. 
And no matter what he said to him, the minister didn't get upset. And he didn't fight him, and he didn't come back fearful because he was full of love for him. He said, I don't like the things you're doing, the things you're say, saying, but you, as a person, I love. So one day, uh, the guy just kept getting angrier and angrier because he couldn't get a rise out of him. So one day they went and they burned the cross on his yard. And he opened his window and said, hold on for me, I'll be out with the marshmallows in a few minutes. And he said, it befuddled them so much they didn't know what to do. They jumped in their cars and they ran. But the, the end of that story was that the man came to talk with him about why he was so angry. And ultimately he resigned from the KKK and he became a minister. And love was able to do something that hate never could. If you really believe that, do good even when the urge to, to reciprocate in like mind or like manner arises. That's a hard work to do, but that is what we're called to do. And that is what we have the capacity to do. Knowing this puts us at a place of calm and a place of ease, even right now, when the world is on fire. We're in our fire protection suits, walking in the midst of it, spraying a mist of water that can soothe and put out every flame. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.